Once again, it's uh, nice to be able to start a interview style on our podcast this uh, fall at the Christian Study Center. Mike Zacassis and I are here together. I'm Richard Horner. I'm the director of the center. Mike is our associate director for educational programming, and we are both um, glad to be teaching director's classes this fall. I am doing a class on reading the Gospels, and Mike is doing a class on place. Uh, Mike, what's the actual title of your class? The actual title is Displaced, um, reflecting on the uh, moral and theological dimensions of place and embodiment. Mike, I know last semester you taught a class on time called Timely Virtues. This semester you're doing one on place uh, in which we emphasize the fact that we are displaced. Um, I'd be interested in knowing as you've thought about time and place, which in some obvious sense, I guess, kind of go together. What do you find to be the unifying factors or the themes that bring these two aspects of our existence together, time and place? Yeah, no, I think that for me, the, the fundamental, um, the unifying point, as it were, is that we are embodied creatures. And so we exist uh, fundamentally on these dimensions. Um, we exist in time and in place. And then under uh, underlying that is the possibility that we can have uh, better or worse ordered relationships to those realities. That there's a, a way of relating to the human experience of time that is more conducive to our uh, happiness or satisfaction uh, or flourishing, some might say, and that there's a way of relating to time that, that undermines that same kind of experience of satisfaction or flourishing. And then likewise with place, that there's a, there are better and worse ways of ordering our relationship to place. Um, and the assumption is that these, these end up being sort of moral categories in the sense that they, they impinge upon our moral life um, they, in terms of, of what is good for us as human beings um, or what is um, destructive or what undermines our good as human beings. And that, of course, the, the theological dimension arises from the fact that you know, from a Christian perspective, there is a there is a created order uh, that we do best to respect and abide by, and to, to find the, the parameters and the coordinates of our flourishing within this um, created order. And so that's that's sort of the sort of the underlying assumptions, I guess, that are operating when I think about time and place from from this dimension. And once again, I'm hearing your Augustinian notion of, of virtue and of the good life as a, a life of um, well-ordered loves, um, of loving what one ought to love, of not loving what one ought not to love, and then ordering those loves rightly. Um, I, I love that understanding and that way of thinking about life, partly because it is so all-inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so things like time and place and space and body all come into view. I know in the Timely Virtues class, you um, had a nice rubric that time itself seems to suggest, which is past, present, and future. Uh, when you and I have talked about place, we, we've sort of struggled um, to see anything parallel to that. Are there themes that you're immediately seeing and that you want to develop in this class? Yeah, so the title suggests, I think, something uh, important about the, the nature of the class, and that is the, the assumption that we, 
as it was with time, that we that we fundamentally have a, a disordered relationship to, to place. So we, our experience is often one of being displaced, of not knowing our place well. Um, and, and one of the points that I made in the, in the first class um, is that there is this, this series of associations related to place. So when we talk about place, we can be talking um, very immediately and very concretely about the physical space that we're inhabiting, uh, whether that's the, the shape of my home, um, the, the urban environment, which is my wider, my wider environment, um, the human relationships to the natural world, all these deal very concretely with, with place in a, in a very physical sense. Um, but then it's not hard then beyond to go very quickly into um, moral experiences or, or more sort of emotional or effective experiences of place. Uh, so that, you know, I suggested in the class when we, when we think of the idea of home and what constitutes home and how important it is for us to, to have a home, not just a, a place that we go to to sleep at night, uh, but a place that answers to our longings for, uh, for relationship and belonging and security and safety. Um, we, we're talking about place, but, but it's in a slightly different register. And then that, again, in an almost Augustinian vein, when we think about the, the home of the human soul, uh, so we're allegorizing to, cer to a certain degree, but we're still using that language of, of place and belonging um, to speak about our spiritual alienation, our spiritual pilgrimage, um, the sense that we are not yet uh, or, or are struggling to find a place, metaphorically or theologically speaking, uh, that can be our home. It's easy to see how this becomes um, these different layers of, of place and the experience of place and what it becomes a, a metaphor for um, are very they're interwoven very intimately into the human experience. And so the moment you begin talking about this, I think you begin to recognize that, that we have these various dimensions of our experience that are worth reflecting on and thinking about. Um, mm -hmm. And that happens, I think, very quickly with time. And, and again, it can happen very quickly with place as well, that, that we become immediately aware of its significance for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think your um, reference to the notion of pilgrimage and of seeing ourselves as pilgrims does a nice job of locating us between simply being tourists on the one hand, um, but also on the other side, um, recognizing that we are still headed somewhere, that, that there is a, a place for us now and, and that we are also in some kind of movement um, that doesn't lessen the importance of place now. If anything, it heightens the importance of place in, in lots of ways and at lots of uh, levels, I think. I was listening to Ken Meyer's interviews um, recently and, and they were talking some about this and, um, and whether you know, having a heavenly home um, you know, undermines the idea of taking place uh, seriously now. And Ken made the observation that the idea that God would be our father uh, through Christ does not undermine the uh, the significance of human fathers. Uh, quite to the contrary, it does the opposite, and that the same I think can be said about place, and particularly when that heavenly place is the new heavens and new earth, um, as pictured in Scripture. 
the the issue of place from Genesis one and one to three right through um, you know the end of Revelation is uh, is a fascinating issue just with regard to even the biblical text. Uh, so once again, I'm delighted you're doing a class like this. Um, and uh, just so everybody knows who's listening, there is room uh, still in that class, and we are also making classes available um, through the audio feeds that you can get by subscribing to uh, this newsletter. Uh, so you can do that yourselves or let others know it's available. One of the other things that was really rewarding this week was the reading group that you led on Zoom of Zena Hitt's uh, book, Lost in Thought. Um, great little experiment there in reading groups for us on Zoom, Monday evening at 8 o'clock. Um, and it was a wonderful a group of nine of us having that conversation. Um, I, I found it personally really engaging, uh, this this call to a life of the mind uh, was something that obviously the nine of us in that discussion all found resonant. Um, I wondered, you know, in that conversation, one of the things that came up was Hitz's idea of contrasting the life of the mind or learning as a kind of an instrumental thing that always has to have some instrumental end, like you know, a vocation that one gets by going to college, for instance, is kind of one of the reductionistic approaches, but but an instrumental view of learning versus learning as an end in itself. And we wondered together that evening as to whether those two mm -hmm. are, are our only options. Is, is it just reduced to an instrumental idea or, or what would we mean by even using this phrase, learning as an end in itself? Um, I know even, you know, we've talked about Simone Weil and others I, I find myself wanting a kind of a third option or something, mm -hmm. something a little richer, yeah. um, or, or a learning as an end in itself that still still understands why it's an end in itself. You're right. Yeah, that has a framing for mm -hmm. taking that seriously. Um, I think Hitz is um, primarily interested in kind of combating the, um, the instrumental view of learning that, that, in her view, dominates even within uh, the academy and the university where um, you you learn for the professional advantages that accrue from learning and, and maybe there's a kind of joy in learning initially but it can as it was in her own experience can be overwhelmed then by by the professional um, context within you, which you pursue learning mm -hmm. to achieve a certain status a certain kind of pay grade or um, any any other sort of what Lewis would call mercenary um, uh, end, right? So I'm, I'm thinking of how in The Weight of Glory, you know, Lewis talks about how there are goods that are sort of internal uh, to the practice that mm -hmm. we are right to pursue, to desire, to crave, but then there are those that are external to the practice. So if somebody marries for money, we say that, you know, there's something, Ex they're pursuing a good that is external to the institution of marriage and so for that reason it's a mercenary endeavor um, and I think Hitz is primarily interested in combating all the very mercenary ways in which we pursue learning or the life of the mind if we pursue it at all um, and at the same time I think I you know I, I, I hear what you're saying and I, I think I agree with that that there is a sense in which as a, as a Christian we we would add some other level to this that um, I'm, I'm learning for its own sake because that's something good that God has created for me. That's part of the way that I realize my humanity. Yeah, yeah, that I flourish 
most fully as the human as God has intended me to be. Right. Yeah, yeah. But but I do appreciate your comment just about the joy of learning because I think then that fits in that rubric. Yeah, right. Uh, that that and that, and that it is sad that so many of us end up losing that kind of joy of learning um, at, at any number of levels, not just reading books, but yeah. getting to want, know one's own yard or whatever it might be. Right. Um, that, that there is this joy in learning. Um, and a satisfaction yeah. in doing that. Mm-hmm. And if I may interject a kind of um, uh, a point from Ivan Illich, um, that we've too readily sort of um, aligned learning with school so that we allow the rubric of school or the institution of school with its pro- curricular progression through stages and its certifications and its credentialism to sort of define for us what learning is. And while that has its place, I've been a teacher most of my life, um, nonetheless, that, that w- way of allowing school to monopolize learning has its costs. And I think what Hitz is encouraging us to do, not explicitly in those terms that Ivan Illich sets out, but, but in ways that are consonant with it, is to see learning as something that can happen in any number of contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, it could happen even in a sort of solitary context uh, when one person discovers a book that awakens their imagination um, or their, their, um, they find aesthetic joy in it or uh, their lives are changed because of that encounter. Um, it can happen. Yeah, and, and I would like to think that the study center is one of those little institutions that seeks these kinds of ends of learning and thoughtfulness um, as fundamental goods in the eyes of God and therefore in our own um, and that we can offer that kind of thing. It does make me think immediately of our Dante reading. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been delightful to have students say, I can't believe there's a place in the world that actually is wanting to read Dante with me. Um, and we're delighted, of course, that there are such students. Um, and so this is ongoing as well. Um, if uh, you are not aware, we have gone from the Inferno into the Purgatorio and are into it now. Um, but as with the other programs, um, you are welcome to join. Uh, several things are on Zoom right now. Uh, some things are uh, available at this point only by the audio feeds, but those will be put up each week after the classes that Mike and I are teaching. Uh, Mike, anything you want to add on the Dante reading or uh, about that group? I've, I've, I've admitted to you that I can't immediately say that Dante is my favorite author in the world, um, but I'm really glad I have friends to read it together with and so glad to have your help in doing so. Um, it is certainly fascinating, and um, the idea that this this portion of the comedy, of Dante's Divine Comedy, is sort of a picture of a sort of sanctifying process mm-hmm. of um, dealing with our failings, our sin, um, and being transformed is a fascinating study, and I, and I look forward to uh, climbing the mountain mm-hmm. along with everybody else in the process. Yeah, I think, you know, the, if, if people have any familiarity with Dante, of course, it's the idea of Dante's Inferno. In fact, those two words are almost always paired together. Um, and, and few, I think, have actually read the Inferno, uh, but probably just have this image of this kind of grotesque journey through the, through the underworld. Um, but Purgatory is very different, um, and it is, again, 
a question of, of moral and spiritual formation and how we cultivate the virtues uh, by purging the vices of pride and envy and lust uh, and sloth, these, these sort of classically medieval vices that are purged through these terraces of purgatory. Uh, it really does become a kind of uh, handbook for, for sanctification, to put it perhaps in slightly more Protestant terms, um, and is very rewarding and rich. And, um, and yeah, I'm glad that we're doing that as well uh, as a kind of act of, um, of preservation in some respects to sort of keep the tradition alive. Uh, but also, again, it's, it is the exercise of, of this um, capacity to learn and to learn in community, to read together. Uh, these, I think, are vital practices that need to need sometimes need institutional support. Uh, like you say, they need, you know, we need to find people who want to do this together with us in order um, to find the, the greatest value in these practices and, and to sustain them. So, yeah, definitely very glad that we're, we're doing that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, we invite anyone in on any of this. Mm-hmm. Um, this time around, we're talking mostly about the program, but as the semester unfolds, what Mike and I want to do is sort of alternate between the written version of our newsletter, um, which is often also given as an audio file, uh, but then have conversations like this, and those conversations will be less about program and logistics and such things, and increasingly about the ideas that we're engaging and that you are as well. I don't want to get away without having at least a few comments about your Gospels class, uh, which are your in-person class filled up very quickly. Um, so there's a history here. This has been a very popular class at the, at the center. Um, but, but what is distinctive about this? Because it's not just a Gospel survey class, right? This, this has a unique flavor to it that's, that you've cultivated over the years. And, and there is one slot remaining, uh, but I want wanting to hear you sort of articulate this, even if there weren't. Mm-hmm. And it is available as an audio file for anyone who simply right. wants to listen in from week to week, uh, no matter where you are, who you are. Yeah, I, I think the simple idea is reading the four Gospels alongside each other. Um, and so you keep all four of them in view as you read, and, and fascinating things happen, both because of the similarities that you find, um, and because of the dissimilarities and contrast that you find. Just this week, we introduced the class. We just read the opening verses of the four Gospels. And I think what strikes most people in that class is how different those four Gospels are, just even in entering into the stories that they enter into. So while they are ultimately about the same individual, um, Jesus is obviously the central figure in all four Gospels. And I would argue the four Gospels make an ultimately uh, similar argument as to who he is and how to understand him. Um, The ways they do that are distinct in each case um, and very interesting challenges come up, but also a wonderful richness follows from putting those four accounts next to each other and letting them kind of work off each other so that by letting them work off each other, you get a much clearer idea of what each one is trying to do. If you had only one gospel, it would be hard to see and appreciate the distinctiveness. Um, But by laying it alongside the others, the differences highlight uh, the the uniqueness of each one and uh, makes it much clearer as to uh, what the various agendas and audiences and perspectives are. Um, and I think really brings a wonderful richness to the reading of those Gospels. As always, the things we're doing are open to anyone and everyone. You don't need to come in the room with any particular conviction. 
as to how to read or what to believe uh, as we study these things. And it's wonderful to have a variety of viewpoints in these classes as we do them at the center. Um, and meanwhile, my emphasis is always on reading the text still more carefully uh, and going back and reading it some more to see just um, as best we can uh, just what the authors of these texts are up to and, and uh, wanting to convey. Yeah, and I will say if you have any questions, if you're listening to, to this and, and are intrigued by any aspects of our program and want to get connected in any way, please feel free to email me uh, at mike at christianstudycenter.org, mike at christianstudycenter.org, and I'll certainly help you get connected in whatever way possible. Um, so we do have a lot of options um, ranging from the in-person director's classes to Zoom versions of that class and the reading group and the Dante reading group and then uh, staying in touch with these groups through the audio files that, that will be coming through this particular feed. So please uh, don't hesitate to reach out and uh, I'll be happy to get you get you connected.